Well, as we've been going through the book of First Peter, um, every message that I've given so far has had the title, Exile Something. And uh, the reason for that is because Peter thought of the Christians that he was writing to as exiles. That's one of the words that he uses to describe them. People who were living in a different culture than their own culture and belief system, uh, who were, in a sense, far from home. That's really what Christians are. Like the ancient Israelites who were exiled to Babylon for a period of time and had to figure out how to hold fast to their beliefs and biblical doctrines and practices inside a society and culture that didn't agree with them, uh, the Christians that Peter was writing to were going through a similar experience. And though there are differences for us in our uh, context and especially concerning and considering our American history, uh, the reality is we are, I think, in a similar time in our own lives today. So every message I've given is exile something. And today, I want to talk to you about exile pastors. Uh, because in these first four verses of 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter turns his attention to the pastors of the churches in Asia Minor, the region that he was writing to. And for all of you today, I pray that you'll consider this as an important passage of scripture for you. I, I, as I prepared this and thought about this, I mean, these, this passage of scripture has been highly meaningful to me in my own life because it tells me at least in part how to do what I do, how to train others who are going to do what I do, how to uh, lead the community of pastors that I lead here at Calvary Monterey, how to pour into other pastors out there. But as I'm speaking to you, I'm very conscious of the fact that a small percentage of us uh, here today in this teaching are called to the pastoral work. There might be one or two or three of us here right now listening to this message who either are pastors right now or will be pastors at some point in the future. So how does this pertain to you? What is meaningful for you? Why would this passage of scripture matter to you? And part of the reason why I think this passage matters so much is because of the context that Peter was writing in. Peter was writing, as I said, to a church that was in exile, and especially when chaos is unfolding and a church is marginalized, it's important for you to choose wisely who you follow, who you listen to, who you allow to be your, in a sense, spiritual leader in life. And I think that Peter understood this. Peter was a man who was prepared for the hostility that was going to come. He, of course, at the point that he wrote this letter, already experienced lots of hostility in his own life. I don't know how many of you guys have read the book of Acts before, but by the time that Peter wrote this letter, much of what we see in his life in the book of Acts has already unfolded. That means he's been arrested. That means he's been beaten. That means he's experienced hostility for the gospel from people outside the church, but also from people inside the church. So Peter is very experienced and well-versed at what it means to suffer for Jesus. But Peter, at this point in his life, was also very conscious of the reality that he would suffer for Jesus in the future. I don't know if you know this about Peter, but Peter had an indication from Jesus 
about how he would die as a martyr for Christ. At the end of the Gospel of John, when Jesus was still on earth, but after his resurrection, he gathered with a small group of disciples on the shores of Galilee and restored Peter into ministry, said, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my flock. And then he said this to Peter. He said, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then John said, this Jesus said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. Church history tells us, or tradition tells us, that Peter was eventually crucified. And that as they were crucifying him, he did not want to be crucified like Jesus, so he requested to be crucified upside down as a way to honor his Lord. And all this to say that Peter knew that hostility for the sake of the gospel could come, especially to those who were mouthpieces for Jesus. And so he wanted to speak to the elders of the church and encourage them to teach them how to do their work. So let's start off reading the first two verses together. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. He says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And we'll stop right there in our passage before reading on in a, in a moment. The first question we have to ask is, who are the elders that Peter is writing to in this passage of Scripture? And I've already given you a big clue. I've called the message today, Exile Pastors, because I believe that Peter was writing to the pastors of the church uh, there in Asia Minor. Uh, the word elder is a word that can strictly mean older person, uh, but in the New Testament, it's used to describe pastors. Uh, there are other titles for pastors used in the New Testament as well. Uh, the word overseer is found in this text. The word shepherd is sometimes used to describe their function. Uh, the word pastor is also used. Elder is used. The word bishop is used as well. And you can kind of call me any of them except for bishop. That one just gets a little cringy for me. But these words and titles were used interchangeably in the New Testament, kind of uh, describing the same role or office, but different functions or facets of that same office. Now, the fact that they are called elders also does not mean that pastors are meant to be older men in the church. Often, they are older, uh, but the word elder here for pastors is meant to indicate not age, but the kind of maturity that a man is supposed to have if he serves in this role or function. Timothy himself, who was a pastor, uh, was written to by Paul, and he was a young man as a pastor, so much so that Paul told him in 1 Timothy chapter 4 not to let anyone despise his youth, but to be an example to the believers in all different types of ways in his life. So age is not a requirement for pastoral work, although it can be helpful because it matures you uh, if you're walking with Jesus as time 
goes on. I was 29 years old when I became the senior pastor of this church, and it was a really weird title for me to have at that stage of my life. The only senior I'd ever been was a senior in high school uh, at that point in my life. And so to feel that I was a senior pastor just felt odd, but that's not the idea. The idea of an elder is that they're a pastor who has the kind of maturity that an older person ought to have if they were walking with the Lord. But what can we learn today from Peter's exhortations to pastors? And again, why should this matter? Well, I think one reason is that the pastors you select in your lifetime are of great importance to your well-being and the well-being of God's people. Through solid teaching, through servant leadership, and a healthy example, good pastors can aid you in a myriad of ways. A good pastors can impact, of course, your spiritual health. We're talking about spiritual matters. We're talking about the word of God. Uh, they can also, though, impact your mental health because as your spirit goes, so often goes your psyche, your soul before the Lord. And I think good pastors can even impact at times your physical health, partly through teaching you about margin and boundaries and balance and a healthy self-image, but sometimes just by being good examples. There's been more than one man who's come up to me over the last six months and told me that after Pastor Manny has given announcements on a Sunday morning, they've been convicted that they need to go start working out. <laughs> so there are times even that our physical bodies are benefited by our past pastors. Our pastors can calm you, they can encourage you, they can correct you. I think if you listen to what they have to say, they can help you with nearly every relationship in life. They can strengthen your life pursuits because they'll help you see what's important and what's not important. They can talk you out of grave error and life-altering sins. They can help you draw close to God, and they can stand out as an example to follow. Choosing pastors is an important decision in your life. A few weeks ago, I had the blessed honor, and I'm going to embarrass him now in a moment, but I had the blessing of being the pastor who presided over the retirement ceremony for Commander Tim Unkefer, who's seated over here after 42 years serving our U.S. Navy. That's about as long as I've been alive. <laughs> and when Tim sent me his kind of career bio to process and think about and pray through, one of the things that he did is he shared with me every church that he had been part of during his entire career. And as I, you know, looked at this list, and of course, very different places and times all throughout the world, uh, it just impressed me. That decision, every single place he's been, was an important decision in his life. You see, the choice that you make of who will serve as your pastor is a really big deal. And I think that it's especially important during times where Christians are called to live an exilic Christianity. I mean, think about it. If waves of Christians, just imagine this, if waves of Christians selected pastors who were merely entertaining but cared little for discipleship or the word of God, what do you think would be the result among those Christians? Or what would happen to you if your pastor repeatedly brought you into grave theological error? Or 
Think of the impact of having a pastor who is motivated by the fear of man and numbers and attendance and all of that rather than the fear of God. These are important realities. So how do we make this choice? What are we supposed to look for? Well, the first thing I want you to see from verse 1 and 2 is that pastors are meant to be shepherds. That's what you need to look for. Pastors are meant to be shepherds. Now, I think sometimes in the church, we have a sentimental and sappy view of what it means for a pastor to be a shepherd. Now, we're not an agrarian society, so we might have uh, an artistic, precious moments kind of view about what it looks like to be a a shepherd. Like a shepherd must just be someone who gets little cozy sheep and just snuggles them all day long. And that might be kind of the image that some of you have of what a pastor is. They just kind of spend time with Christians all the time, just snuggling up and enjoying each other or something like that. But in the Old and New Testament, shepherds are spoken of as self-jeopardizing people who lay down their lives for the flock. Moses and David in the Old Testament are examples of shepherds over the people of Israel. Both of them at times, Moses for Egypt, David for the Philistines, confronting the hostile powers that be, putting their own lives in danger, being a target, if you will, for the sake of the body. Isaiah and Ezekiel, they rebuked bad shepherds in their writings. Shepherds who did things for unrighteous gain or who wouldn't say hard things to God's people, things they didn't want to hear. And remember the context Peter's writing to. These churches were at the beginning stages of marginalization for the gospel's sake. I think as Peter looked out at the swells of hostility that were coming in, he realized that a tsunami was coming. And since the pastors that he was writing to were the visible figureheads and leaders of these churches, Peter assumed that these men and their lives and safety were at jeopardy. He knew that war was coming. He knew that they would be the visible figureheads so often. And so he encouraged them, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. It's another way of Peter saying to these men, don't be afraid, do your job, do the thing that you're called to do. And I think that Peter, as I said earlier, could relate to the combative nature of the role that these men were in. He'd fought for the gospel, as I said, outside and inside the church, and often suffered in the process. And he confesses in the first two verses that he was also able to relate to what they were going to endure because he'd watched Jesus suffer. He said, I was a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that's going to be revealed. It's true. Peter had seen it. He'd seen Jesus have the tide of popular opinion turned against him over time. He watched Jesus become alienated from his own family members. He saw the Jewish leaders and Roman officials reject Jesus. He knew about the plots against Jesus, the arrest of Jesus, and the beatings that Jesus had endured. And of course, he knew of the cross of Jesus. Peter was there during the distress and agony of the Garden of Gethsemane. He saw how the weight of the world was on Jesus' shoulders. 
He was privy to all that. And so he knew that Jesus, the chief shepherd, the ultimate shepherd, the senior shepherd, the real pastor of the church, he knew that Jesus had suffered first and that anything that he endured or the pastors after him endured, that they were enduring it in like manner because of the Lord. So what did Peter want these shepherds, these pastors to do? He wanted them to shepherd. That's why he said it in verse two, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. In fact, in this passage, he doesn't even call them shepherds. He just tells them to shepherd. Shepherd the flock that is among you. Now, if you ask the question, what does it mean to shepherd? You could probably come up with 20 different answers that accumulatively describe the shepherd role. But when Jesus described it to Peter, he used two words. He said, tend and feed. Tend and feed. To tend means to care or lead or guide or protect. And I got to tell you, that can be an exhausting work and you never feel like you do it perfectly. And to feed means to bring the nutritive resource of God's word to God's people in a variety of ways. That also is tiring work. And both jobs, tending and feeding, they are never done. There's never a day in my pastoral life where the end of the day comes and I think to myself, there's nothing to do tomorrow. (laughs) There's always more tending and more feeding to do. So that's the first thing you want to find is shepherds. But secondly, notice in verse 2 and 3, we also learned that pastors must be willing to do the work. Let's read it together at the end of verse 2 on into verse 3, if you would please look in your Bibles. He says, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. When Peter says these things, he's going after the heart motivation of pastors. Notice first, he says that pastors should not do what they do under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have him. Willingly is the word that Peter used. Now, this is interesting because I've known a lot of pastors in my lifetime, and I've known some pastors who, uh, they just never really wanted to be a pastor. And I can relate to that, that feeling in particular. I grew up in a church planner's church pastor home, and I don't think there was ever a point where I thought to myself, that's what I want to do when I get older. You know, I thought to myself, that seems like a hard job. There's got to be an easier way to earn a dollar. I'll figure out something else kind of thing. But a point came in my life where the calling came into my life, but then the will and the eagerness to do it also unfolded within me. But I've known a lot of pastors who never wanted to do it, but who because they felt called to do it, somehow felt forced into it by God. But their heart is just not in it. There's not a passion For the work. And Peter said that should not be the case. Not by compulsion, but willingly. They should want to be pastors. But he also said there in verse 2 that pastors should not pastor, and we already read this. He said, for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, when Peter said this, this was not his way of saying that pastors should never be paid financially for their work. In the Bible, some pastors are paid, some pastors are not paid. Uh, Paul said things like this, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, 
especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, the laborer is worthy of his wages. And actually, right before he said the laborer is worthy of his wages, he compared pastors to oxen. Don't uh, muzzle the ox while it shreds out the grain. So if that image works for you, that's the image that Paul used in the New Testament. Peter's not picking uh, on uh, salaried pastors, uh, those who get some financial gain for the work, but he's picking on those who do it for shameful gain. That's the word that he used. And I think we can observe this in exorbitant forms, in modern prosperity preachers or in celebrity pastors. But Peter said that pastors instead should be eager to do the work. Now, I just want you guys to think about the implications of these two words, willing and eager. That's kind of like a continual attitude. Now, I'm sure many of you entered into a career that at the beginning, you were willing and eager. And then as time went on, you began kind of wondering, did I, did I choose the right career path? Did I head in the right direction? The idea about being willing and eager continually is that you have to continually reshape or allow the Spirit to reform your heart so that you are continually willing and eager. Uh, many of you who are married understand exactly what I'm talking about. You know, on the day that you uh, say, I do, there's supposed to be, there usually is an intense amount of eagerness and willingness to enter into that relationship. Christina and I right now, we're doing a premarital counseling for a, a young couple that's going to get married next year at some point, Lord willing. And one of the things we try to tell them is, you guys don't even know what you don't know. You don't even know what questions to ask the other person. You know, like, okay, have at it. Ask all the deepest. They don't even know what to ask because they don't know what's coming. They don't know what's important. They don't know what 10, 20 years down the road is going to become an issue potentially in their life and marriage. But in a marriage, as time goes on, even if your eagerness or your willingness begins to wane, what do you have to do? You have to go to work. You have to roll up your sleeves and say, no, I covenanted with this person. Something's getting in there that's messing with me right now, so I need to refocus on them. I need to re-enjoy them. I need to go on some dates. I need to take some time away. I need to get some counsel. I need to do the work so that my will and my eagerness is fanned into full flame once again. Pastors have to do that regarding their work every day of their lives. This is part of the reason well, I know that my personal walk with Jesus is of immense importance to all of you. I know that it's there that Jesus is going to reignite me almost daily for the work that he's asked of my life. But they must be willing, is what Peter said. Now, in addition to being able to serve you guys, the Lord has given me the opportunity of knowing a lot of pastors. And I really like ministering to pastors. I like helping young pastors, older pastors, as much as I'm able to. I think he's given me this heart partly because I grew up in a pastor's home. And I can tell you that a lot of pastors struggle with discouragement. I mean, it's just a reality in human life, but it can be a, a strong thing in the life of a pastor. And a lot of pastors right now, especially the last couple of years, are especially discouraged. 
Uh, many of them have burdens placed upon them that they could not possibly bear. Some of them have allowed expectations of them to run out of control. And if you think about it, most pastors are exposed to the more unsavory effects of sin. And they're also exposed to the problematic portions of the body of Christ, the church family on a regular basis. You know, what do you do? What, what do most people do when they have beef with someone in their life group? Or they meet someone at the church that they don't really like. Now, every once in a while, there's someone really mature. They do the thing. They meet with the person. Then they bring someone else, and they do the Matthew 18 thing. But most Christians just go to a different service or sometimes a different church or a different life group or something like that. Pastors don't have that luxury. When someone's creating problems in the church, they have to run to the problem. They have to deal with the issue. And when the church is marginalized or exiled, fears can compound in a church's mind and in a pastor's mind and heart. He can feel that he has a target on his back from the outside and the inside of the church at times. So he and the church should work hard to establish boundaries and rhythms that allow his soul to be nourished and re-nourished by God. He has to open up his spirit to God's spirit so that God can reignite the will within. And you guys have always been really great to me about this here in this church. Uh, even a couple of years ago, uh, you guys sent me on a 10-week sabbatical. It was so refreshing to be out of the pulpit for 10 weeks. I, when I'm teaching, I think really hard, and I'm not super smart, so it's hard for me to put it all together. So it was nice to just kind of settle down for a little while and just let my brain reset, and it was like God knew exactly what he was doing. It's like God knew that the world was just going to go nuts right after I got back from sabbatical. It's like he was saying, you need some strength for what's about to come, so I'm going to go let you get some rest so that you can go through the pandemonium that is about to unfold. But pastors need to do things like these so that they can have the will to do the work. But look at verse 3 with me also. Another thing I want you to see is that pastors must be examples. Shepherds, willing, but examples. He says in verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, a lot of us know that the Bible teaches us to be imitators of God. God says, be holy, for I am holy. Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God as beloved children. And we know that as we imitate God, Jesus is our model as God the Son. John said in 1 John 2.6, that whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. But even though we're called to imitate God and follow the way of Jesus, pastors are to live as examples to the flock. They're not supposed to domineer over the church, Peter said, or one translation I like said, lord it over. They're not to lord it over the congregation, but they're called to lead by example. Paul expressed this when he said things like this to the Corinthian church, imitate me as I imitate Christ, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. So as he was following Jesus, they were to follow him. And Paul told T Timothy and Titus, who were pastors, to live exemplary lives. You know, even when you look at the list in the New Testament, the various lists that describe what a pastor must be, uh, they're lists that are 
short on talents and long on character. And I think part of the reason for that is that in God's mind, the pastoral group is meant to be examples to the whole church of what Christian maturity looks like. You know, when you look at the qualifications, for instance, Paul will tell Timothy, oh, one of the things that pastors need to be is they must not be drunkards. Well, it's not that the rest of the church just goes like, well, yo, I'm not a pastor, so I guess I'm just going to have at it. No, it's that the pastors are examples for the rest of the body. As Hebrews said in Hebrews 13, verse 7, remember your leaders and those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And I just want to point out something to you about that. That model, it's a model that's exploding right now because you're able to listen to voices that you can't consider the outcome of their way of life. But in the local church context, you can consider what a person's life looks like off the platform, out of the pulpit. Even if you don't know them personally, you can kind of see their family or what they're like, but when you're just listening to a podcast or whatever, you have no idea what that person is like in their personal life. You can't consider the outcome of their way of life. But the context of Peter's words makes it sound like this whole methodology being an example, that that was in jeopardy. It sounds good to us for pastors to lead by example, but in those days, a pastor apparently could lead through domination, partly because they had a significant amount of authority. So Peter had to tell them, don't dominate. Don't dominate the people that are in your care. And by the way, this can still be done today. This dominating, domineering style of leadership can still happen today. Now, some of you guys have told me that you've been listening to or have listened to Christianity Today's popular podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's a confounding look at how power, rather than service, can become the norm in a church, even a church that God is using, or in a church movement. And a lot of Christians, many of you here today even, have stories of painful interactions with church leadership. I know I have those stories. And I'm sure there have been times where I've been part of those stories, unfortunately, in someone else's life, even unknowingly. But the general trend of a pastor's life and ministry should be towards humble service rather than running roughshod over God's people. But unfortunately, sometimes the most charismatic and confident church leaders also struggle with this methodology of being an example. But Jesus always stands out as the pattern to follow. He didn't domineer, but he patiently served his people while exemplifying the life that he wanted them to follow. So what I want you guys to do is just continually in your life, as you're going through life, I'm sure for many of you, I'm not going to be the last pastor that you ever, you know, join yourself up with. I want you to look for pastors who have character. Find men that you can imitate. Listen for their way of life. Listen for their emphases. Listen to their passions. Find out what drives them. Are they intent on building God's kingdom or serving their own kingdom? Are they concerned with their own popularity or with the popularity of Christ? Can they celebrate the wins of others or do they have to be at the forefront of everything? Do they love their family? Do they manage their lives well? Are they self-controlled and disciplined? Do they speak gently to individuals? Do they fear God? Do they love his word? Do they take their own sanctification seriously? Or conversely, 
Do they neglect their family? Are their lives chaotic and impossibly overwhelmed beyond the margins? Are they angry when they preach? Are they inflammatory when they speak? Do they have few boundaries? Do they lack self-control? Are they loose with their words? Do they cross lines and disobey God? Again, no man is perfect, but you should find pastors who live exemplary lives. And I think this is especially important in chaotic times, seasons where the church is exiled because you want to have solid people at the helm in, age, in ages like those. But one last thing I want you to see about pastors. Not only are, should they be shepherds and want to do the work and <clears throat> examples to the church, but they should be motivated by Jesus. Let's read verse 4 together. It says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive, he talks to the pastors now, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This verse and truth should be a major motivating factor for the pastors that you invite into your lives in the years to come. Find pastors who are motivated by the return of the ultimate pastor the true shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Find pastors who are motivated by the reality that when Jesus comes, he will give good pastors what he calls an unfading crown of glory. Now, I know some of you have wondered about the crowns that are mentioned in the New Testament, and there are crowns mentioned for believers that you'll receive one day, the crown of righteousness and the crown of life, for example. Some people think those are literal crowns, but many more think that those are metaphors for the righteousness or salvation that you will ultimately experience in Christ Jesus one day. But this crown is something different, not a crown that all believers receive, but that faithful pastors receive, the crown of glory. And the word crown that Peter used was the word that they would use in their culture for athletes who would win a contest or Roman generals who would come home successful in battle. They'd receive a crown, and those crowns were usually perishable, a wreath uh, of you know, foliage of some type that would, over time, you know, decay and rot and wither away. But Peter says here that pastors don't receive a crown like that, but an unfading crown of glory. And a good pastor will be motivated by this, motivated by what Jesus will give him when he returns. He will look forward to hearing Jesus say, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter in to the joy of the Lord. I've already told you guys in a previous sermon that I'm shooting to get Helen Mirren's house in Tahoe City in the millennium. I'm, I'm hoping that my faithful service will hook me up in the age to come. And this motivation will make a good pastor impervious to the sudden shifts that can come upon the exiled church. When his motivation is what Jesus thinks of him, a pastor will have reservoirs of strength that enable him to handle criticism, navigate waves of trials, and endure pressures from outside and inside the church. With Christ's reward as his motivation, a pastor will say, Whatever he has to say, even as if his audience doesn't like it, or even if, on the other hand, those same words could land him in prison. So pastors 
in exile, they care much about what Christ thinks of them. And they think less about what people think of them. They are looking for the reward. So you want to find a pastor that is motivated by Jesus. Let's wrap it up by reading verse 5 together. I want to show you one last thing because this goes together with everything Peter has said. Likewise, he said, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the, crowd, the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When, when Peter said this, especially to the younger people in the first half of the verse, it wasn't that older folks didn't need to be subject to the elders. It's not what he's saying. But that younger believers sometimes needed to learn that lesson for the very first time. A lot of younger Christians, younger believers in age, they don't know about going along with their pastors, following their pastors, being led by their pastors, receiving from their pastors. Their own ideas and images are way too important. But all of us are called to relate to each other with humility, Peter said. And what I want to say is that I think it's this humility that gets the job done. The last thing I want to show you is that the conclusion is if you find pastors like Peter is describing, you should have synergy with them. The word synergy means that you take separate groups or parts that by themselves could accomplish one thing, but you put them together and their efforts are multiplied and they accomplish so much more together. That's the way it is between pastors and a congregation. Alone, you can get a certain amount done, but together with synergy, you can accomplish so much for Jesus. And the churches that Peter wrote to, I don't know if you guys know this about them, but historically speaking, they accomplished a ton for the Lord. After Peter wrote to them, in the four hundred years that followed, the four first four centuries of the church, this region in Asia, Asia Minor became a massive theological and missions-oriented center for the gospel. They had massive churches, incredible theologians that arose out of this region. It wasn't until they got the favor of the state through Constantine that the church there began to lose its power and effectiveness. But they were greatly effective for God in those first four centuries. And I think part of it was because they had listened to Peter's words. As pastors and church members humbly worked together, they did damage for God's kingdom. And I think this humility towards one another is really important, especially in times when the church is marginalized. You know, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in chaos, people's perspectives abound and become at times really sharp, really sharp. But with humility, we should be able to serve and love across a variety of convictions and perspectives. Humility helps us think that we might be wrong about some secondary or tertiary issues and that others might be right. Humility helps us realize that we aren't infallible books ourselves. Humility helps us keep the gospel as the thing of highest importance. And humility gives us synergy to work together. Two parts producing a greater effect than we could alone.
Well, part of the reason I mention this is because I think it's important for us to just see what the Word says. But I think partly I mention it because it's part of our American DNA to question authority, isn't it? You know, we're about liberty here. I, I listened to an Australian pastor recently talking about the American church, and I was just like, bro, you don't get it. You don't get what we're about over here. You know, there's just some stuff in our DNA that causes us to question and challenge authority. You know, even this last week when the Monterey County did their whole indoor mask ordinance and all of that, I went to high school. I graduated class of 96 at PG High with the woman that's spearheading that whole thing right now. And man, that grated hard against my heart and spirit seeing that kind of ruling and ordinance go down. And Christians, on one hand, are even more extreme. Uh, you know what we're called on this side of the Reformation, right? There's Roman Catholics and then there's Protestants. That means we protest things. They were more known for what they were against for a long period of time. We are protesting against what Roman Catholicism has handed down. Still, amid all of that, Peter's words and many others in the New Testament ring true. Hebrews 13, verse 17, for example. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It seems there's something powerful about joining yourself to pastors like Peter described. If they're good shepherds, if they're willing to do the work, if they are good examples, and if they look to Jesus' reward, they are worth linking up with. Though they're imperfect, so is every part of the body of Christ. And together, with humility, we can accomplish much. 